Good afternoon. This is Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. Dr. John Hunt, your host. We're here every fourth Thursday at 4 p.m. Uh, this show is recorded again, uh, so we don't, do not have any uh, opportunity for you to call in for questions. My apologies for that. I always like to advertise my other show I do Sunday mornings at 730 in the morning, uh, Pet Sounds. It's a three to five minute uh, short on various topics. So tune in if you're awake at 7.30 on a Sunday morning. Don't get up special. You can always listen to my pet sounds on the uh, archives. Today, I have a, today uh, fantastic. We have a fantastic guest here, uh, Dr. Catherine Pollock. She is a veterinarian that lives in Thailand. And that's not Thailand, New Jersey. It's Thailand and Southeast Asia. And we're going to talk about the um, importation, exportation, her side is exportation of dogs and maybe cats, if that's applicable, from foreign countries. As you remember, two months ago, I talked to Peter Fitzgerald about rescuing dogs, importing. This is kind of on the other side of the, of the, uh, of the pond, so to speak, but the Pacific pond, not the Atlantic pond. So good morning, Catherine. How are you? Or good afternoon, I should say. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. So tell us um, a little bit about who you are and where you are and why why you're there before we get into our talk. <laughs> sure. Well, where do I begin? <laughs> so, so as you mentioned, uh, I am a veterinarian, definitely an animal lover at heart. Um, I'm actually from the U.S., um, from the, the Chicagoland area. And again, I just always had a passion for helping animals. And I thought that the best way to do that was to pursue, you know, the veterinarian route. So very traditionally, you know, thought I was going to work in a private vet clinic. I went to vet school um, and then I became exposed, I would say, to some of the, the realities of animal sheltering. And, you know, not, not to date myself here, but this is going back a few years when, you know, there really was a crisis in, in many communities and, and there still is to an extent, um, but of pets being euthanized in shelters. And I thought, well, gosh, like this is what I have to devote myself to. You know, I really want to help shelter animals like this is the crisis facing companion animals. And so after veterinary school, I ended up really focusing on what we call shelter medicine, which is trying to reduce, you know, shelter euthanasia of pets and find more animals homes and all of that good stuff, train veterinarians on spay neuter. And so I did, you know, an internship and a residency in shelter medicine. So that was my path. Um, and then the path deviated when I ended up doing some disaster relief work in Bangkok. Um, I was asked to help you know, being the, the shelter medicine expert uh, in training that I was at the time, I was asked to go to Thailand. There was some catastrophic flooding in Bangkok. Um, if you've ever been to Thailand, you'll know that there's millions of dogs living, you know, outside on the streets. And so many of those dogs were affected by the flooding. And so I ended up going to Thailand to set up this disaster shelter and work with some of the local veterinarians um, that was actually my, my first time in Asia. Um, and I, I really became very passionate about uh, trying to improve animal welfare in Thailand. And at the time, I had a little bit of time left in my residency at the University of Florida. 
um, but I actually received, there was an opportunity to take a director level position at a, at the largest animal welfare charity in Thailand. And so I thought, oh, what, you know, what a great opportunity. Um, so I packed up my things thinking that I would only be there for a short time. Um, and turns out I never left. And so I, uh, worked uh for the organization um it was soy dog foundation this is back you know quite a few years ago where we established you know spay neuter programs across thailand veterinary training programs we launched a spay neuter project in bangkok which is the capital um to target upwards of 60,000 dogs a year to try to provide you know free spay neuter services um so we did a lot of incredible things and now i'm still in thailand and i work for a charity known as Four Paws, so F-O-U-R-P-A-W-S. And we're actually, the, the organization is based out of Vienna, Austria, but has offices in 15 countries around the world. And so I was hired on to develop their companion animal strategy for all of Southeast Asia. So while I live in Thailand, actually very little of my work is in Thailand. It's mostly in Cambodia, Vietnam, Indonesia, we just launched a program in India this year um, to empower local charities, train local vets, you know, and find local sustainable solutions for animal welfare issues. And um, there's there's a lot of them, you know. So so yeah, I, I have my work cut out for me, but it's it's really exciting and happy to be here. What's your traveling like then? Do you go? You have to go to all these countries, obviously. If you would have asked me about a year and a half ago, I would have told you, yeah, 80% of the time was traveling. Um, I would go to each of the programs and we had, you know, events and campaigns and we work a lot with the government as well, you know, local and national governments, because again, we want you know, policy changes for animals. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really exciting. Now, uh, now there are, you know, indefinite travel bans throughout all of Southeast Asia. So travel is just a no-go and it will be for, you know, quite some time. The, the COVID vaccine rollout for people has been you know, really slow. And so that's really unfortunate. But on the flip side, what's been really awesome is to see our local teams like really taking initiative, doing the work, like, and it's nice to, in some ways, not be needed. I mean, it's bittersweet, right? You want to be needed, right. but it's really great to sit back and watch the rescues and to watch the work, you know, that you have, you know, a Vietnamese team, you know, helping Vietnamese communities. That's ultimately what we want. You mentioned during your, um, your resume, uh, <laughs> a lot of, uh, the organizations you're dealing with, charities, foundations, then at the end, you kind of said, I'm working with government. So it seems like the government is kind of paws off, so to speak, on pun intended, uh, yeah. in terms of animal welfare. And you're depending on foundations and charities, which means uh, private funds. So how does how is that going? I mean, what is it a constant battle? Is it, are you doing any are you responsible for fundraising? Where does your money come from? And how's your relationship with the governments? Lots of lots of challenging questions there. Yeah, no, but all, all good ones. So ultimately, you know, we want a sustainable change. And so while we are an animal welfare charity, um, we recognize that animal welfare often isn't the priority or even like on the agenda, you know, of local and national government agencies. And so it's, it's often our job to put animal welfare on their agenda. 
Um, and so we try to do that a variety of ways. Um, our role is always to be collaborative and supportive. That's how I look at it, that we are here to help, um, you know, the government's find solutions. We provide training opportunities. We work a lot on a lot of the work that I do is on dog and cat meat trade, meat, you know, consumption. And so we know that that is a public health risk due to rabies. We know that it's an animal welfare issue. And we also know that it's not great for international reputation. Uh, and so we work with governments, again, to help support them to end, you know, some of these horrific trades. Um, and it's really challenging. You know, we try to find the ones that are more receptive. Um, and so we always, again, take a local approach. So we have local teams engaging with the governments locally. Our funding does come from international donors. So most of our funding comes from the German-speaking world. Um, our supporter base is largely in Austria, Switzerland, Germany. If you say Fjordfoten, which is four paws in German to German-speaking people, they'll know it. Like it doesn't have a lot of brand recognition in the U.S. If you say four paws, we have a Boston office, I should say, um, but it's small. Um, you know, a very passionate set of <laughs> set of uh, girls that work in that office, but it is small. Um, so most of our funding and you know our supporters are in Europe. Um, but we are growing in, in Southeast Asia as well, which is really exciting. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's the government's responsibility, right? Like, yes, we are there. Like, yes, we, um, you know, can support, but to an extent um, where, you know, we want to train up the government so that they can do their own rabies eradication program so that they can do their own sterilization clinic. So it, it is tricky, though, because it, it's, a, it's a fine line sometimes. Well, they don't they don't want to. Right. Because it's too much trouble and it costs money. Yeah, it's expensive. So, so that's, you, where our, yeah, go ahead. that's where we come in to try to, to, to have them see the benefit. Right. To see the benefit to tourism, see the benefit to international reputation, see the benefit for public health of their communities. Right. And see how they can ultimately save money. And, I, you know, one of the big issues in Southeast Asia is rabies. You know, it's something in the U.S. that we don't think a lot about. Um, on the day to day, it probably doesn't affect like for people listening, it probably doesn't affect your day to day. You don't wake up thinking about worrying about your children getting bitten by a stray dog on, on the yeah. way to school. Right. Um, but it's a real consideration in Southeast Asia. It takes millions of lives every year, particularly children. And it's devastating. Um, and it's you know, it's a almost 99 percent transmitted by dog bites. It's something in the U.S. I think we often don't think about because we think of it wildlife transmitted rabies. But dogs are the main vector. And it's a real simple fix. It's vaccinating the dogs. Right. Um, Sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> but um, so. So. Right. But, you know, governments aren't, aren't thinking about it or, you know, someone gets bitten by a dog and will kill all the dogs. Right. That's the knee jerk response. And so, again, that's where we come in to say, well. There's these other ways you can go about doing it. So the um, disease, well, one of the things you mentioned was that all these children getting bit. Tell the listeners exactly how pets are, how, how pet dogs and stray dogs, that there's a kind of a blend there. I mean, how are they, how are they taken care of in the countries that you're in? I think it's a little different than. Uh, fluffy inside, uh, sitting on the couch. <laughs> yeah. yeah there's, how, there's the, and how that affects how that affects the control of rabies. 
Sure. Yeah, there's definitely some some differences in pet ownership in Southeast Asia as we would compare it to to the Western world. Um, I think one of the important things to mention, though, is that pet ownership is dramatically increasing. I mean, across Asia, it is a it's a booming industry. If you look at you know pet food sales trends, right? And so more and more people are owning pets. But with that being said, you know the reality is that there's still uh, more of a uh, a notion that dogs, in many instances, are more community owned. So that means that many of the dogs are on the street. They are fed by someone. Like that's an important distinction. And we often see, you know, these Western-led initiatives that want to go in and you know rescue the dogs. When in fact, like that is someone's dog. Someone's feeding it. Um, particularly in Southeast Asia, where you have you know Buddhism cultures, where you're you're very much what we call making merit, um, which is kind of like doing good deeds, good karma um, by feeding animals. And so you'll see a lot of feeding leftovers, rice, noodles. Um, so so that's good in some ways for the dogs because they're getting food, but it's also encouraging population growth. <laughs> so that's kind of like on the downside. Um, and so if you were to point to a dog and say, you know, whose dog is this? <laughs> Most people would be like, not my dog. Like, right. Well, do you feed it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, but it certainly wouldn't go in someone's house, you know, generally speaking. But we are seeing on the flip side, what's, what's interesting though, is, is, you know, increasing pet ownership and more animals being brought into their homes, a lot of pure breeds. And that's a whole nother issue where you have, you know, puppy mills and, and some other inhumane, you know, breeding practices. But then you have this distinction also between, you know, the small fluffy white dog that lives in an apartment in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam versus the stray dog. Like those are kind of different um, types, in, you know, in, in the conscious of the public. Um, one of the other issues I'll just mention that's very specific to Southeast Asia is we have, you know, again, a lot, Buddhism is the predominant religion in most countries. And so you have a lot of Buddhist temples and many, if you've ever been to the region, you'll know that there's many stray dogs and cats often um, at these temples. And the reason for that is because there's a common misconception uh, that if I don't want my dog anymore, I just dump it at a temple, like just dump it at a temple, <laughs> the monks will care for it. Because every morning, what do the monks do? They go out and they make their alms and they get food donations from the people. Um, and so often the leftovers, they do feed to the dogs and to the cats. Um, but that's generally where the care ends. So the animals aren't going to get medical care. They're not going to get spay neuter. They're not going to get vaccinated. So there's a lot of suffering uh, at these temples. So often there, there are big animal welfare issues. Um, and so we try to do a lot of public engagement uh, and community awareness about like, please don't dump your animals at these temples. Like the monks generally don't want these dogs at the temples either. Um, and so it creates, yeah, a lot of community issues. So the, 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 the people feel uh, less guilty if they dump their dog with the monks because they know they're going to be fed. Yeah. But yet they're, exactly. they're just like the rest of the population is that the, the stray and the, the own dog are about the same. Um, right. There's one one place where the monks have a lot of are they bull mastiffs? There's one I read something about that they just have they don't kill them so they have a million of them. 
Yeah. Or that one. One of the other, I think, complicating factors too, is we often see as well, like a reluctance to spay neuter again, because of this kind of Buddhist philosophy of life, you know, you don't want to do to the animal will be done to you and maybe another life. And so, um, you know, a lot of engagement, I think that's changing, um, you know, as kind of street dogs, spay neuter programs grow regionally, um, we're seeing less and less of that, but that is something, yeah, it's also to be aware of. I think our listeners can, can identify with that situation with dogs somewhat with cats here, the stray cat. I got that during my practice in Bucksport for years. A lot of people uh, feed cats that, that show up at the back door. So they feed them so they feel good, good about that, but they don't take ownership, spay, neuter, shots. And that seems like that's what's going on over your neck of the woods, but at a more grand scale, except now you're getting some household pets, but that's still a minority. I understand. Yeah, that's correct. No, you're totally right. There's a lot of similarities. Um, and I think also even the temple situation, I'm not sure it's that different than people dumping animals at a shelter as well. No, there's all these different similarities. There's just some important cultural distinctions. Um, yeah, I think, you know, with with the pet ownership, it is really exciting. You know, we do run a lot of education programs, particularly for children to get them excited. Um, you know, but but more than anything, I think it's really important. We're seeing this rising, you know, pet ownership, but we're not necessarily seeing rising um, like education and awareness about what being a responsible owner is. Um, uh. And so that's what we're doing a lot of as well. Like, here's how you feed your animal. Here's how you take care of it. You don't put it in a cage all day. Just, you know, the most basic of things. So you mentioned the word, which seems critical to me in your, in your goal is sustainability. You want pet sustainability, which, you, which that's what you're working on. But in the meantime, uh, you have a lot of pets like in the meat market or in just in towns that are overrun. Uh, you can help another avenue helping that is uh, exporting the animals to other countries, to people who want dogs. So how are you involved in, I, I guess at your neck of the woods is exporting. We're talking about importing and <laughs> my side. So I don't know what we call exporting. Yeah. We'll just stick to exporting because that's what you're dealing with. Yeah. Saving, not sa- well, saving, but exporting dogs to other countries. What part of your job is involved with that. We kind of go into that a little bit more detail because I think uh, that's something that may touch people here. Sure. Yeah. I've never really thought of myself as a dog exporter per se, but I guess okay, you could call good. it that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, again, we always look for local solutions whenever possible. And we do run, you know, local adoption events and, you know, things of that nature because that's what we want, right? To increase like pet adoption in the long term. Um, but there are certainly instances where, you know, we just know that we're not going to find adopters for certain animals, or we've rescued a large group of them. And, you know, one of the real issues is to everybody, everybody is in your supporters in the general public. Like they want you to save the animals, go save the animals. Of course we want to save the animals, Um, But where to put the animals is always the issue, right? Because we work with a network of local charities. And as you can imagine, these charities are small. Like these charities 
are in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. They're in central Vietnam. Um, and particularly now with COVID, there's such a demand for services, right? Because people are under lockdown. They can't get to, um, you know, they can't buy pet food. People are dumping animals. We're also seeing a very like rampant theft of pets for the dog and cat meat trade because people are so economically desperate, breaking into people's gardens and yards to steal their pets. I mean, it's really horrific. And so these charities are under a lot of pressure uh, and, you know, they're very overwhelmed. Many of them also relied on local, on, on expats. So on, you know, foreign, you know, volunteers and fosterers and whatnot. And they've had to go back. Like if you were a U.S. citizen in Vietnam, like you've probably gone back by now. Um, your country's, your company has probably pulled you back or whatnot. Um, so they're really, you know, under working under very challenging circumstances. Um, but I'll give an example of where we felt the need to export some dogs. And so this was maybe six to eight months ago. We've been working a lot with the Cambodian government and particularly in Siem Reap, which is, you know, very well, you know, tourist area. And they intercepted a minivan that had 61 dogs that were on its way to a slaughterhouse. And they called, this was a Sunday morning. And they said, you know, we intercepted some dogs, you know, come pick them up. To come pick them up, like we don't have we don't have a shelter. <laughs> like, pick them up, put them where? And so we were scrambling to find somewhere, you know, to put these dogs. And we ended up finding a plot of land, and we retrofitted a shelter. Um, and you know, we've been running adoption campaigns, but the reality is, particularly now, people are worried about just feeding their families. Um, they're not able to leave their homes. There's a lot of red zones. Your know, travel is really difficult. So. Um, we have, you know, some lovely dogs that just need another home. And we know that we have, you know, a network of partners in the U.S. that could help facilitate, you know, rehoming of these dogs. And so we sent, it was 20 of them. And this is just before the ban. This was in maybe June uh, this summer. It was a couple months ago where we were able to ship some dogs um, from Cambodia uh, to L.A., and I mean, really challenging though. I mean, this was, <laughs> this was difficult before uh, the CDC imposed uh, a suspension, um, but really challenging because many airlines have just pulled service from the country. So Cambodia, for instance, we were really reliant on Qatar Airways. They've just completely pulled the service from the whole country. Um, and so there's very few airlines flying. Um, the cargo price is incredibly expensive. So yeah, it's, it's been really difficult, but we were, we were able to get the 20 dogs to LA. They all got adopted a shout out to our rescue partner, the barking lot in, in Ramona, California. And we also had eight cats from Vietnam that made it to uh, that were rescued from a, a slaughterhouse closure that we did that made it to LA as well. Um, shout out to our partner in North Hollywood, heaven on earth. Um, there's still one cat available for adoption, but yeah, so we do have these, these special instances where we will look to place animals internationally. This is let's talk animals from aardvarks to zebras. Dr. John Hunt, your host. We're talking to Dr. Catherine Pollock, Pollock of, uh, Thailand. Um, and we're talking about uh, the situation of dogs and cats in Southeast Asia and, and her work in trying to um, help them out. Uh, we're talking about exportation. And this is WERU 89.9 in East Orland, Maine. The, uh, just a review 
with the listeners with this, we, we you and I were talking about the ban, and some of our listeners may not be familiar with that. If you could just kind of detail that out, and then we can move on so they understand what you're dealing with as of this past June. Sure. So in the past, you know, we have multiple options for, you know, where do we want to find these dogs in Southeast Asia or in Asia in general? Where can we rehome them? You know, of course, there's Europe. That's an option. Canada is an option. But the U.S. was generally always preferred because there is a very passionate rescue community in the U.S., shelters that are willing to help out. Um, And you also it was it was financially easier. And from a timeline perspective, it was easier to ship to the US. Um, Shipping to Europe was generally more expensive. And you also had to undergo some additional diagnostic tests, which were expensive, and they just prolonged the period. So every rescuer would say, yeah, you know, ship to the US or to Canada, that was the easiest. Um, And then very unexpectedly, the US CDC passed a temporary suspension in July of dogs arriving in the U.S. from 113 rabies endemic countries. And so that that's a lot. That's all the countries that I work in. And so, um, yeah, so that so kind there, of put the kibosh on that, on that program. Their motive was uh, to prevent dog the dog rabies strain from getting into the United States. There had been a couple, one, couple from Egypt and one from some Slavic nation. I can't remember what it was. So that really raised alarms. So, but they, they put the hammer down pretty hard. Uh, as I understand yes. the one thing we don't do in the United States is uh, test for rabies, which other European countries do, which would be, I think a lot of the welfare and animal rescue people are trying to tell the government, Hey, why don't we just implement that? Would that totally. be the- and, and Hawaii does it. Yeah. You know, Hawaii does Hawaii- it successfully. <laughs> they're, they're doing it all the time. Right. Totally. You know, there are ways. This was a very, you know, blanket approach, uh, you know, that just shocked shocked everybody, you know, that that was involved. We work very closely with USDA. I think, you know, the groups that do it well, we have brokers, we have veterinary partners, like, you know, we really go through, you know, a lot of hoops to make sure that, you know, we're ensuring the health and welfare of these dogs. I think one of the, the challenges is, during COVID, and I do appreciate this challenge that the CDC has in trying to um, not like police where the dogs are coming in, but it does take, you know, a lot of their time to, you know, detect fraudulent paperwork to make sure that, um, you know, one of the real challenges is that there's minimal staffing, I think, during COVID as well at some of these ports of entry and that, they were having situations where dogs were coming in mostly for commercial sales. So this is not for, you know, this is more like puppy mill dogs. These are not rescue dogs, but we're flying in. And then once they got there, you know, they were noticed that they had fraudulent paperwork. Like maybe the rabies certs were, you know, not real. Um, and so generally during those situations, the plane would be turned around and sent back. Um, but what was happening is that there were some instances where, the plane, there, the, there weren't flights right away, right? Because again, there's very few flights during COVID. And so what happened were some of these dogs just went to an offsite hangar and some of them ended up dying because of it, um, because there weren't staff to feed and clean. And so it just caused a lot of commotion. I think that contributed to also the CDC saying, look, like we can't do this right now, full stop um, until we sort a better system. So that's unfortunate for us that we're, you know, continuing to look for international placements for our dogs. So you're looking to Europe and 
and where else? We are. Yeah. yeah, we are. Because, you know, the thing is, that's the one thing that we can really offer to the government. You know, we want them taking action, particularly on the dog and cat meat trade. We want them taking action to, to shut these, you know, businesses down, um, to start, you know, intercepting trucks, really make a public statement to say, look, enough is enough. We're not going to allow you know, this trade anymore that is, you know, in many cases, breaking a variety of laws in the country itself. But if we can't offer that support, like governments don't have dog shelters to just magically, or like staff trained, you know, to take care of dogs. So that's really where we come in as an NGO to provide support. But it really like hamstrings our ability now, because if we don't have placement opportunities, we can't just keep the dogs like for years in a temporary shelter, we need to have placement opportunities. So it's really affected. Yeah. I mean, our, our activities and our planning for the year and years to come. It's too bad because the demand for importing dogs from overseas has increased uh, for a lot of different reasons. Um, social media being huge. I imagine I've been your social media connections. Tell us about that. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that is the real you know, driving factor. You know, we live in such a global society where, you know, everything's just a click away. And so, yes, the story of the dog at the shelter is compelling. And so is the story of the dog that's in Thailand that was rescued off a, you know, a dog meat truck. It really pulls and tugs at people's heartstrings. Um, and, and, you know, and with, you know, social media being what it is, it really has connected. I mean, not only, you know, pet lovers to the stories, but also organizations, you know, that are, are in partnership together. And that's certainly how we work when we export dogs. You know, we're doing it through a partnership with an importing agency. You know, I mentioned the two that are in California and those have been really critical um, and they can help, you know, assess the animals if they need any more medical care, socialization, find them, you know, adoptive homes. So, yeah, it's um, it's a shame because I think particularly during COVID, we are seeing more people also wanting pets. Um, and we certainly have animals to provide, <laughs> you know, uh, that, you know, would, would make excellent pets, but um, not not in the next few months, at least. Uh, yeah. So you still you're st- you're still doing some exporting and it's going to probably come back once this pandemic uh, fades or gets under control. So what kind of responsibilities uh, do you have? Uh, the big interest, you wrote a, a quite an extensive paper about disease control and preventing disease, uh, which is a huge factor because shipping an animal is stressful and you don't want to have you want to be able the dog to survive the experience and get back, get to wherever they are Germany or United States in a healthy way so you're in a position where you don't have a lot of veterinary help or professional help but yet so how do you um, how do you prep a, a dog for exporting and we can get into some of the diseases that you're really concerned with Sure. Yeah. Those are all, all true points. Um, we do struggle because uh, we have to be realistic that we don't have the same diagnostics and the same capacity as you might have in New York City or, you know, <laughs> most places in the U.S. Um, you know, the, the veterinary training in general in Southeast Asia, and again, then this varies, you know, country by country, but is generally, you know, much poorer than what we would expect. Um the 
uh, the academic curriculum of most veterinary colleges in Southeast Asia are strictly agriculture. So they're strictly livestock. So you have many veterinarians, um, Cambodia, Indonesia, Vietnam come to mind where they graduate and they really haven't touched a cat or a dog. It is predominantly livestock. So then you can't expect them to be able to provide you know, high quality surgical services and all of this. And so again, we work with vets where we try to train them. That's always a critical part of our programs. Um, are they receptive to that? Receptive to your training? These are these large animal vets. And others. Oh. In in you know, in most places, there's a lot of excitement. And you know, because there's a des you know, a sense of desperation to get more training. Um I think we also, particularly as Americans, we take for granted the power of our passport. You know, if we want to go to Europe, we book a ticket. Well, maybe not so much during COVID, no. but, you know, we book a ticket. We go, we want to go to Mexico. We go. Um, but for most passport holders in Southeast Asia, their passports don't get them access to, you know, training opportunities and international to get to go to Europe is incredibly challenging. You know, you're talking about scrutiny at the embassies. You're having to make interview appointments. You're like, it's just the, the training opportunities are very far and few, um, even within the country, but certainly internationally. And so most places that we go, there is a lot of, you know, they're very receptive. And so that's really cool. Um, and in some countries we do see where foreign vets do have the ability to have their own clinic, Cambodia being one. So we do have, you know, foreign vets that we work with as well, which is really critical, I think, for, for you know, talking about exporting pets abroad, because like we need to be a hundred percent certain or as certain as we can, I guess we can never be a hundred percent. Right. But as certain as we can, that the animals are physically and behaviorally healthy, you know, because many times when we're rescuing these dogs and cats, you know, they come to us with no medical history, no vaccination history. And so you're really starting from scratch. Um, you know, but, but we have to do our best, you know, we have to do our best with what we have um, and to also be very transparent with the importing group that this is our capacity, like full stop. This is what we can do, um, because I think also there's sometimes you know, demands, you know, that we may or may not be able to reach depending on the diagnostic capacity in the country that we're working. So you have, for instance, a uh, uh, importing country is has a high demand for puppies. And of course, as an exporter, puppies wouldn't be the ideal uh, no, animal. No why, and why, why is that? <laughs> yeah, puppies for, for multiple reasons. I mean, for one, there, there is a, you know, import restriction in the U.S. six months. So we need to make sure that we see those cane, those adult canine teeth coming in before we even consider um, exporting. But also because we want to export the animals that are, you know, the most immunologically um, you know, sound that aren't potentially harboring, you know, diseases like parvovirus, like distemper virus. We want healthy adult animals that are also, I think also that the behavior is really important. I mentioned that just yes, a minute please. ago, but like, yeah. please expound the, on that. <laughs> the physical part is, is half the equation, right? Um, and sometimes that's the easier part of the equation. You know, the, the difficult part is often when you have dogs that have never lived in a house before, They've never gone upstairs. They've never had a lead around their, a leash around their neck. <laughs> They've never worn a harness. And so we really have to also make sure that we're addressing the, the behavioral needs and that we have the ability to, you know, work with the dogs to get them, you know, to, to increase their chances of success 
once they go to a to a traditional home environment um, wherever in the U.S. So, yeah, we have our work cut out for us on the exporting side for sure. So you so you need to sort and pick basically. So you have totally. So you go to a a shelter, or you you pick up a a truck that is going to go to the meat market. So now you have yep. fifty dogs. Yep. So you need to. How do you how do you decide which ones? What are the what's like the steps? What's the first thing you look at when you see the fifty dogs come in? I'm kind of being a little bit. Yeah. Uh, simplistic. No, very simplistic. But do you look yeah. at first? Do you you call call? I hate to say word call. Do you uh, separate? You know the puppies we're not going to export. Then yeah. Then what's the next before you do anything with them? Are there certain dogs you just say they can't they can't go? And then there's a group that, yeah, we can, if, if we do this and that, what kind of decision? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. I mean, first, yeah, puppies for sure. Those are a no go. So those are out. Um, The other, the other, I think the next kind of triage in my mind is, are there any dogs that are a sure thing for local adoption? Because that is just the cheaper, easiest way to go. Is there a purebred dog? Is there, you know, a white, lovely dog that, you know, we think someone would adopt locally. If you get those out right away, you know, get those into local homes and then that's a win for everybody. It saves us a lot of money and hassle. Um, but, but so then you're left with like the majority of animals because very few animals generally will fit that description. Um, and we don't see a ton of puppies in the dog meter. I mean, sometimes you do from time to time, but they're mostly going to be bigger dogs. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's hard to, I think we always, after a rescue, we want to give the dogs time, you know, because the dog's personality at the time of the rescue, I mean, they're so terrified, um, and they often are aggressive. And if you put yourself in their shoes, what they've been through, many of these dogs were stolen from their communities or from their homes, from their owners. Um, many of them, by the time we get them, they've been in holding areas and, and crammed into trucks and really inhumane situations going to slaughterhouses. Um, they've been, some, some of them get poisoned, they get beaten over the head into submission before they're put into the trucks. So like you can imagine these are, it's not a time to be, like assessing their behavior because it's just not fair to the animal. So we always give them time, you know, at least a week or two to, to see, I think that's really always amazing to me is the fact that these dogs are just undergone just the most ultimate betrayal, you know, to man's best friend. Um, but yet they learn to love again. And I think if the, the same things that happened to you or I, like we wouldn't be so quick to love again and to trust within a couple of weeks time, but these dogs are just incredible. So we give them some time and then we assess, you know, who are the, the obvious, the friendly ones, um, the ones that, you know, are, are trainable, you know, off the bat, um, do any have special needs? I think this is um, what we're actually looking at now. We have a dog that ended up having to have both eyes taken out. And so this would be a good dog where, you know, it's not doing, it's not a great environment to be in a group shelter um, for this dog. So maybe we can find that dog an international home where it can get, you know, the care that it needs. Um, but then, yeah, we're, we're looking for dogs that are, you know, overtly healthy. Um, you know, we don't want any signs of infectious disease, um, you know, medical conditions. Um, and so, yeah, I think then we just kind of go from there. Sometimes we'll do profiles on, you know, a selection of dogs, and then we might send it over to our shelter partner and see, you know, are those, you know, which ones do they think they can adopt or, you know, do they have, you know, certain interests? Um, so yeah, it's a collaborative process. You have uh, one aspect, the physical. So if they have fleas or mange, 
or ear infections, you can hopefully have trained people to, to deal with that. Um, then you have the coughing and the diarrhea and the weight loss and you know, simple stuff. So worming, things like that, right? So you, you, you go ahead and do all that to a dog that you think you're going to export. Yeah. I mean, all the dogs are getting vaccinated off the bat. I mean, vaccinated and deworm because the last thing we would want would be like a distemper outbreak at the, sh- at the shelter after we just rescued these yeah. stuff. Yeah. Vaccination on intake is really critical. Having every animal, having a medical record is critical. We microchip wow. all the animals. All of the animals are also getting spay neutered right away. Like we also don't want any <laughs> puppies being born. Um, and so, you know, I would say like the medical care that we're able to provide, is actually pretty impressive. I think just given the general Sounds situation. Like yeah. And so, and then we work with the, the shelter as well. And we're also doing, you know, heartworm tests. You know, we want to make sure that we're not sending any dogs that are potentially heartworm positive or that aren't getting the treatment that they need. I mean, we've even done brucellosis testing. We sent off samples to, I think it was Cornell's diagnostic lab at the, the, at the request of the importing agency. And so we, try to do our best. And I think one of the things too, that I've learned years of being involved also in dog exportation is that it is far easier and far cheaper to manage issues in the exporting country. Like the price that we're paying for, you know, a surgical procedure or spay neuter. Um, I'll, I'll give an example too. Um, I mean, you do have, you do have dogs that slide through where you, you've done a good physical exam. You've done the best you can. And then it goes to, I'm just thinking this is an example that sticks out to me that goes to Denver and we get an invoice for $3,000 because the dog has a transmissible venereal tumor. (laughs) And so that is a a disease that we see um, that it's spread through sexual contact in dogs. Very common in your neck of the woods, isn't it? It is. Yeah. But sometimes it goes undetected. It can be very small, a little lesion inside in the vulva, the, you know, the genital areas. And then it does (laughs) not It rears its ugly head once the dog gets. And so then, you know, obviously the owners are upset. um, And it's very expensive if you take it to an oncologist, whereas, you know, that type of treatment is, you know, $15 in Southeast Asia. Like vet medicine was back when I was practicing. Now it's uh, here. It's just (laughs) the the cost is just and and you bear the cost because you're are you technically responsible i think every every organization has its own arrangement uh you know generally we try to take care of you know we you might have a group that says you know no we'll take care of it or you know don't worry about it but generally you know we take care of all the funding for the transport and the medical care and the say neuter and so yeah i think um you know, we try to be as responsible as possible when it comes to the dog's health. Don't the importing countries have some uh, protocol? And the dog comes over, isn't there like quarantine and testing? What do, what do they do? You, we'll, we'll get back to more to what you do, but just skipping sure. out since we talked about the Denver situation. So they land in Los Angeles. Uh, so now yeah. they're the United States. So what, what does America do? What are their responsibilities and regulations? And and we'll not talk about the CDC because that just put yeah. the kibosh and everything. But uh, once that's straightened out, other other things. Sure. Yeah, I think um, it often depends on the state, the state restriction. Uh, and it also depends on what the organizational policy is for the importing agency. I think, 
you know, we generally speaking have an arrangement where could we, you know, transfer ownership of the dogs. They are now in the care of, you know, X shelter in, in Los Angeles. Um, but generally speaking, we recommend a two week quarantine and this isn't like, a, I don't think like a published, you know, rule or a hard, hard, you know, rule to follow. But I think two weeks gives the opportunity for, if, if they're incubating disease, like most of the general canine diseases will show within two weeks, like maybe distemper being the, you know, the outlier, but fingers crossed we've had that situation. Um, but just to make sure that, you know, the dogs settle in, um, they're not exposed to other dogs and that, you know, we generally also recommend a veterinary visit, um, you know, ideally within those two weeks, it just depends on the relationship. Like some of the facilities have a vet that comes to the shelter, um, and so we just generally recommend that, um, you know, that they also follow up with their veterinarian. And it's also very important for that veterinarian to understand where these animals came from. And generally there's a relationship or there's a communication process before the dogs actually get there. Um, but we do see situations where dogs, this is speaking historically, have been imported and then, you know, the vet, uh, I'll give an example again, like freaks out because there's a positive, you know, snap test for one of the tick-borne diseases. But we know that those tick-borne diseases are antibody tests. And so they might show exposure in the past. It doesn't necessarily mean the dog's actively exposed. And the majority of dogs, if you snap test them in Southeast Asia, have been exposed to a tick at some point in its life and will show up positive for at least one of those tests. Um, but it causes a lot of confusion and panic. And so we want to make sure that there's you know, ample opportunity for communication and, and education before the dogs even step foot on U.S. soil. So you, you give, for instance, uh, let's just use a tick-borne. Uh, you inform the, well, again, we use Los Angeles just because I yeah. said that. Uh, the shelter there, you would give them educational material that the owner would get, or would they also communicate with the veterinarian and say, hey, look, uh, Mrs. Jones is coming in with, with Fluffy. And it came in from Vietnam. Uh, don't be surprised if, or yeah, is the owner, exactly. or does the owner have all that material and they give it over to the vet? Yeah, I mean, so we provide all the information to the shelter, um, and usually that shelter works with their local veterinarian. But we make sure that that's very well described in the medical record, which should go to the owner, right? That's, you know, that communication though with the owners is obviously the, the importing, you know, shelter's responsibility. So I can't really testify exactly to what the owner gets, but I would suspect that they would get that and they, they should get that information um, to decrease confusion because if they then take their dog to their local practitioner, it'll cause confusion on that end as well. So that's one of the things our listeners uh, may actually be involved with uh, adopting a dog. Um, and there's some cases I've read where they didn't know that the dog was imported. So they're at yeah. a shelter and they, and Fluffy comes by and they had no idea it came from Vietnam. And that's, that's a real problem. So I think one, one of the things that our listeners should know is when you go to a shelter and adopting a dog, find out if it is imported and get all the, the necessary paperwork. They should get a bunch of paperwork, correct? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. And that paperwork should be in English. I think this is one thing I've seen uh, as well. Where you see some monkey, uh, in Chinese or whatnot. Um, <laughs> it's really important too. And I think, you know, and also kind of speaking from a Thailand perspective, really important to have that line of communication because, 
and this is going back a few years, but we do see situations where if the government is involved and let's say the government intercepts a truck of dogs or whatnot, and the government vets will do the surgery, um, the government vets might do the spay neuter surgery, but we know that their training is not great. And so what we've had too is dogs that were spayed uh, and then they go into heat, right? And then that's not fun for anybody. It's not fun for the dog, the new owner, the veterinarian who now has to do an abdominal exploratory surgery to find, you know, what could be, you know, a piece of ovary that was left behind. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's really important. And I think, again, a lot of the, the issues, you know, with international transport can be at least partially remedied by you know, transparency and, and good communication. And people adopting should visit the animal. Some, some people get dogs sight unseen. So this is another issue. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> so, so I've been involved in both sides of this where the dogs went straight to owners that again, it's like a, yeah, like a matchmaking service, but only you're marrying someone you've never met, you know, and you can't get rid of them. Like you can't send them back. Right. Um, There's a TV uh, show about so, that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It doesn't end well generally. <laughs> yeah. And and so, um, right. So we only uh, will do these type of transports with agencies that we've vetted um, and that we know can manage any issues should they arise. Because again, it's a big deal. Like this is a long trip. It's logistically challenging, a ton of paperwork. It's not cheap. And so, um, yeah, it's really important that we have a relationship between organizations. And I think one of the things that I'll just mention that I've seen as well, you know, there are organizations that are doing this right, you know, that have the resources, have the veterinary expertise, have the veterinary uh, relationships. There are other groups, though, that are doing it out of a passion for helping animals, but they might be poorly funded. The veterinary, you know, acumen is not great in their community. Um, and so, uh, and the reason I feel so strongly about these relationships between the organizational agency and the importing agency is that sometimes it's the importing agency that really should be checking on the exporting agency saying, can I see your protocols? Can I see how the dogs are cared for? Can I see you know, your vaccination, uh, you know, protocols. And if an organization is doing things right, they should have no issue providing any of that. Um, but so I think it's an interesting kind of twist that sometimes the importing organization should be ensuring that the outgoing agency is doing things right. Quality control. That's, that's exactly. Important. And how about yeah. the scammers? Are there a lot, do you have a lot of scams out there? A lot of uh, guys, uh, I shouldn't say guys, people, uh, stealing animals and just somehow evading all these rules and regulations and getting them out over to different countries? I don't see that. You know, I don't really see that because it's so expensive. You know, like I don't really see how that would be a very profitable model. We see a lot of animals getting snatched and sold, you know, sold at markets and being slaughtered. Like that's profitable. But exporting nowadays, I think, like, I don't even know how that model would work because it's just so expensive and so hard. Like, it's just, it takes an incredible amount of staff time to do all the permits and attention to detail. And so the easier, I saw a white it. fluffy dog that seemed like a pyramid. It'd be easier to try to sell it to someone in the city. 
A hundred percent. And and I sure there is a lot of that, you know, particularly the online trade in pets. Um, and that's, you know, growing in Southeast Asia. Um, that is definitely an issue. Um, but not so much in like the international rescue community. I haven't seen that personally. Anything's possible though. So <laughs> if, if there's so many stray dogs around, why, why are dogs that are in around houses getting stolen? Can't, can't the thieves just uh, gather up stray dogs and send them off to wherever they're going? Yeah, they do. Yeah, they can. And they do. I mean, in some of the places it's a bit more like, like at the temples, um, we do see dogs getting snatched. We see a lot of cats going missing because if you're a dog thief, you know, where would you get a dog? You just go to the temple and collect a lot of them. But (laughs) There's, there's also like kind of this unwritten rule where like you generally don't steal from the monks. Like that's not good karma. Um, but yeah, I mean, dogs are stolen off the street. And so generally I'm talking more in communities where you don't have that type of theft. Um, in Vietnam, you'll see, and in Cambodia as well, you'll see dog meat, like traders going out on a motorbike and they have a cage attached to the back of their motorbike and they have pots and pans and they go out trading. They have a little like announcement speaker. They go out trading unwanted dogs for pots and pans. So in Thailand, back in the day, these dogs were actually called bucket dogs because people would trade an unwanted dog in the community for a bucket. Like you can kind of understand if you lived in rural Thailand and there was a dog that was barking all the time, it was having puppies, like, Biting people, you'd sell it for a bucket, trade it, you know. And so um, we see, yeah, no dog is safe. So dogs on the street, in temples, in people's homes, they often get, they're getting electrocuted. Um, I mean, really horrific. A lot of cyanide poisoning. Wow. So yeah, it's um, it's in not certain, good. In certain countries yeah. are are more um, accepting of, of the, the meat market, like Vietnam from our red is, is more so than others. Is that true? And then you have people from Thailand going over to Vietnam because there's more, a bigger market over there. Is that happening? Yeah. I mean, so, so the dog meat trade in general, I mean, it's one of the biggest companion animal issues. I mean, certainly in the region um, and it varies geographically. Vietnam certainly is the highest number of dogs and cats. You know, it's, it's hard to estimate quantitatively because it's underground and it's unregulated. But we estimate just from doing surveys at checkpoints, at slaughterhouses, you know, this is a trade upwards of 5 million dogs a year. I mean, wow. it's huge and organized. And you'll see trucks along Highway 1, which is the main through route in Vietnam, that have upwards of 1,000 dogs on it. I mean, it is of massive scale. Um, and cats, it's a bit more secretive because they're just easier to smuggle. But we think, you know, upwards of a million cats. I mean, easy. Just in Vietnam alone. But what's interesting is we do a lot of public opinion polling. And you know, these surveys aren't cheap. <laughs> these are nationwide, nation, you know, nationwide um, a public opinion polls. And we do it to better understand consumption, drivers. And what we find, I think a very common misconception is that the vast majority of people don't consume dog and cat meat. And in Vietnam, 90% of people polled, which is a random polling, would be in favor of a government ban. Again, because of these changing notions about you know, dogs and cats being more as companions or protectors of property or guarding you know, their communities, 
and not as food. Um, you know, dog and cat meat consumption is truly of the minority. You know, in Ho Chi Minh City, for instance, Saigon in Vietnam, less than 4% of people are consumers. In Hanoi, a, a bit more, you know, 7 to, to 10%. So I think it's really interesting. And I think it is a, a trade that we're going to see die out, you know, in our lifetime, governments are increasingly taking action. We're seeing more, you know, governments actually passing bans. CM Reap, the first ever ban on dog meat trade in Cambodia last summer. So it's, it's really exciting. It's exciting times. So I, um, so I wonder, is it going to be to get, to get a control of this market? Is it going to be diminishing the supply or diminishing the demand because you're saying a lot of people don't don't uh, approve of that but yeah four percent of people that's four percent of 100 million people is a lot of people so where do you think in your profession oh, professional opinion where do you think it's going to be most effective the supplier or the demand side I think it's about, I'm not sure this is either supply or demand, but I think it's about the government just really making a strong statement. When we do, when we do um, like focus groups, which are really interesting, when you get a group of dog meat consumers and you start asking them a lot of awkward questions <laughs> about their consumption and what would make them stop, you know, very few things will make them stop. Even if they're celebrity, you know, that they love the most, told them to stop, they wouldn't. But what they what would stop them is if they thought they were going to get in trouble and they thought it was illegal, they weren't going to pay a fine. Like they weren't weren't that, you know, attached to this habit. Um, and so I think if the government truly made a stand and said, look, like, yes, they're in, you know, which they've done in many places in Vietnam, they've started closing these places. They've arrested drivers. Um, they've arrested dog thieves. It's a huge issue in Vietnam, um, causing a lot of societal issues where people are sick and tired of having their pets stolen. And they're actually beating these dog thieves to death. And so I think if we see more action from the government, um, you know, to, to put an end to it, I think people will, it'll generally die out. And I think people aren't going to risk having their load of dogs stolen and them going to jail and shamed in, in the media. Like, I don't think it's worth it to most people. Well, our hour is about up, Catherine. It's, uh, yeah, it went by fast. Uh, it's just a <laughs> fantastic uh, interview. I, I just really appreciate your insight and, and giving our listeners another perspective on pets. Is there one final thought you have? Got like 20 seconds. <laughs> oh gosh, I don't know. I mean, I would just say, you know, I think, um, you know, pet ownership, the love that people have for their pets, it is just universal. It doesn't matter if you're a pet owner in Vietnam, you're a pet owner in Maine, like that feeling of attachment and that love. And also that like heartbreak you feel if someone steals your animal or runs away, like it's just universal. And so, um, yeah, I'm just really proud to be able to do the work that I do. What a great message. Thank you very much, Catherine Pollock. I really appreciate your help. Maybe you can come back again sometime. Um, I would love to. Yeah. Great. Thank you for having me. Well, we'll maybe we'll think of another topic to talk about. <laughs> so this it. is, this is uh, Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Arvarks Zebras. Signing off, remember, enjoy your pet and don't forget to give them a hug.